Welcome to season three of the Yoga Therapy Hour podcast. My name is Amy Wheeler and I'm your host. We are so happy to tell you all that's happening in the world of yoga therapy. And we love to find guests from all over the world so that we can share and learn and grow together. Some of the things that are happening in season three that we find so exciting is that not only are we continuing with the free gift that we are giving out every single week in season two, and you can see more about that in the show notes, but now we are adding a YouTube channel and you can see all of these podcasts on video. The YouTube channel is called Optimal State with Amy Wheeler. Some people like to watch video maybe you want to use it for one of your trainings these videos on youtube will be there for you to use for free we would love your support we have opened up a patreon page that is going to help the podcast flourish and grow you can help us to expand and grow and create more content for you and we'd love for you to visit the patreon page which is called optimal state and yoga therapy hour podcast so let's go into our guest today and please nourish yourself take time for yourself and really relax into listening to the podcast welcome today on the podcast i speak with cheryl fenner brown who lives in north carolina and her expertise is in the subtle tools of yoga. Specifically, she's worked for over 20 years with people who have cancer. So in this episode, we're talking about prana, about breath, about the subtle tools such as nyasam or mudra. And I think this is something that many of us yoga therapists would love to get more continuing education in this area because Let's face it, we've all learned the asanas, we've learned the pranayamas, most of us. And I think our yoga as a community is starting to move into the more subtle realms, such as mudras, niyasams, meditations, using your mind to pay attention to your body and that the prana follows the mind. So it's almost like a direct way to get prana to move through the system. I think we get into some really interesting discussions about how Cheryl has been working with nonprofits to have grant money to teach her classes, how she approaches hospitals to get in the door. She's a very, very motivated woman. And I think you're really going to enjoy this episode for a number of reasons, everything from the subtle tools of yoga all the way to what do I need to do to get a grant so that I can share my work with people who maybe can't afford it or don't have access to yoga. So getting those grants and teaming up with the nonprofits is just a really beautiful way to offer yoga and yoga therapy to more people. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Today, I would like to welcome you to a conversation with a new friend that I've never met before, and we really haven't planned a formal outline for this interview. We're just going to kind of see where the the river takes us, but welcome to Cheryl Benner-Brown. Thank you Thank for coming. You so much. Thanks, Amy. It's really a joy for me to be here with you today. I'm excited to share my love of yoga with your audience. Wonderful. So you are a CIAYT and you did your training mainly at Kripalu, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did the integrative yoga therapy training back when Joseph and Lillian were teaching mm-hmm. it. Fabulous. Yeah, I think I finished in 2015. Okay. I took a long route through it because I was living in on the West Coast at the time. So getting to Kripalu was a journey. <laughs> it's a journey in and of itself. Uh, so I took about I don't want to say almost seven years to do the whole 800 hour training. I have no problem with that. I tell my students, if you make it through in six years, and of course they don't want to hear that because they want to rush right through, but for 800 plus hours of material and digestion and really feeling it in your cells, instead of just memorizing it intellectually, it takes time. It does. And I learn best by doing like Mm -hmm. I have to, I have to practice it myself 
and then I have to figure out how to explain it to someone else for me to really truly understand what I'm talking about. Just hearing it once is just not nearly enough. Yeah. So where are you located on the planet right now? So I am in a very rural area of North Carolina called Bahama, mm. um, spelled Bahama, but pronounced Bahama. And we're about 25 minutes north of Durham, which is sort of central North Carolina. Wonderful. So today we're going to get into cancer care, and I'd like to hear any stories behind that. I don't, you probably know that recently I went through a a small bout myself. So is there a story behind that? Or did you just fall in love with people who are recovering? There is a story. It wasn't exactly happenstance, but I'll give you the short version. So I originally did about a 725 hour program at Piedmont Yoga Studio back in 2004 and 05 with Richard Rosen and Rodney Yee. And through that training program, I started assisting for a woman named Joanne Lyons, who offered classes for people with any kind of physical disability. Mm -hmm. So that really taught me how to look at poses and the function of a pose as opposed to the form being like, it always has to look a certain way. And we would have all these different people in the class doing the same pose, but everybody would be doing something different. So the studio got contacted by an organization called Yoga Bear, and they, I think they still exist, they're in San Francisco. And they wanted to find a teacher in a studio who would be willing to have cancer patients come to their classes for free. Mm -hmm. And Karen Dickman, who was the studio manager at the time, she said, you know, I think we have a teacher who might be able to teach a class for cancer. And there was a nonprofit called Piedmont Yoga Community that offered a grant so that I could actually start classes in three different studios there. And we learned some really important lessons doing studio yoga for cancer. One thing was that the timing, because most of the time, if you're getting a grant class, you're going to get sort of, and, and we weren't paying rent, you're going to get sort of a, an off time, an off time, which is usually in the afternoon when, you know, it's not peak studio time. So whilst the patients were in treatment and not working, they could come to a class. But when they went back to work, that wouldn't be convenient anymore. And we mm -hmm. noticed that the classes had about a six month lifespan. So for about six months with heavy marketing, we were able to, to get people in from the hospitals and from other support groups. But around six months, each of the three classes that we'd started in three different towns and three different studios, they all just kind of stopped. So that taught us that studios is not really the place to try to, to reach cancer patients because they're either going back to the to work or they're not they're, they're not getting better and they're not coming and either either way they're not coming to class. So there was a support group facility in Walnut Creek called the Cancer Support Community and one of my students from one of the classes got me hooked up with them and they said they teach classes there so why don't you go teach there and that was really where it just started to evolve and blossom because I was in the facility right after a support group meeting and people would just stay and come to yoga. So that ended up being, I taught there for about five, six years before I left that area. And it was wonderful. We did research, we did teacher trainings. Like that was just really where I was able to see a really broad student base, all different kinds of cancer, all different phases of just diagnosed to during treatment to survivorship phase. And that really was a wonderful way to bring that into the community a little bit more accessibly. You know, I think you've just given us a huge gem. Mm. I tell our Optimal State Business class this all the time that it's so much easier to go where the people are and be with them when they're already there than it is to try to get them to come to you, especially during these very stressful illnesses. Like, no, we don't have extra energy and yeah. time. It's just too much. So I love that lesson of you went and built the classes where they already were. And I love that you said they stayed for, they were at their support group and they stayed for <laughs> yoga. That's fantastic. So that was back in the early 2000s, it sounds like. And now we're in 2022. <laughs> have you brought your cancer care all the way with you to North Carolina? 
I have. It's different here. It's interesting because when we decided to move here, I spoke to about a year before we moved, we came out and to, to decide if we wanted to live in the area. And I interviewed with a couple of people that were IAYTs and, you know, had teacher training programs just to get the temperature of the area. Like, what's it like here? What kind of classes are people looking for? And whereas Oakland was very Hatha-based and I always was teaching, you know, people over 50, that's always been my sweet spot besides the cancer work here it's all vinyasa like it's it's very workout yoga it's very flow every all the names had to have flow in them and i'm telling you know i'm telling these studio managers i'm like i don't teach vinyasa <laughs> like that is not what i do I, over 50 gentle restorative yoga nidra like that's the kind of stuff you know subtle practices those are all the things that i want to do and they said well we'll try gentle flow or seniors flow or <laughs> the names were just really kind of silly but you know it was marginally okay, you know, I did that for, gosh, about five years, different studios. But really what I started to love doing was teacher training. So I'll come back to that, but that I started to feel like I wanted to offer more workshops for teachers. In the cancer work, there are some nonprofits around here that I did work for for a little while. One was called um, You Call This Yoga, and we did classes for basically anybody to come to. It was still in like a wellness center facility. But then really what I started to do, and this is later, not quite where the pandemic started, but having classes online. And that really has been a boon for this work because just to your exact point, Amy, patients, they don't have to get dressed. They don't have to drive themselves anywhere. They don't have to worry about the time. You know, they can just walk into their living room, pop on their phone and class is happening. So that's really what has sort of fed the community and kept it together during the pandemic and even right before the pandemic. So some of the classes I've done were donation-based, some were actually sponsored by another nonprofit still in California called the NorCal Carsonet Support Group, and they're for people with neuroendocrine tumors. And Josh Mailman, he was actually the, the person that suggested I teach at the Cancer Support Community, so he's kind of been my champion in this work for many, many years. I have a weekly class, a free class that's for everybody. It's for people that are newly diagnosed, people in treatment, people in survivorship phase, and also for the teachers and my trainings to come to that class to kind of see how, how this looks in real life. And we're getting a little bit more, and there's two main hospitals here. There's Chapel Hill, and then there's Duke. Chapel Hill has a cancer program. It's taught by a wonderful teacher. They have classes in, I think it's in like a classroom somewhere on the facility, but Duke Integrative, which is their, it's like a membership, health facility. Been trying for many years to try to get something going there. They've had a lot of leadership changes. So contacting actually just very recently their most recent um, program developer to see if we can't bring some kind of program in there for cancer patients. Okay. There's so sorry. many things I want to. I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, stop. Oh, oh, another thing. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> all right. So, so first of all, there, there's three things that you said that I want to really dig into the online classes and all these grants you seem to be involved in and then hospitals. So first of all, I am in agreement with you that online classes for people with chronic illness, chronic pain, cancer, autoimmune disease. I, I think it's not only the future of yoga therapy, but I think it's the future of healthcare and we need to get on board with that. I think everything from offering it to the clients, but also even yoga training programs can be online now, right? So I, I think number one, we need to acknowledge that our audience actually needs us to be online and it's actually quite difficult for them to come in person. Mm -hmm. Number two, tell us about how you're involved with all these grants. Does the organization find the grant? Do you find it? Is it something you write together? Being involved in a nonprofit is where the grants, that's kind of where you're going to get access to grant money. It's really difficult for an individual to ask for a grant if they don't have a nonprofit behind them. So the two that I've worked with were Piedmont Yoga Community and also the Cancer Support Community is a nonprofit as well. So they were, they're both located on the West Coast. And we go through the process every year of writing these grants. So we use one from the Robert Woods Johnson Foundation and I believe the other one was directly through the cancer support community. And it's a process, you know, they, they have like open windows. 
you apply, you give them information about what the program is. It has to be very detailed. You know, this is how many weeks we're going to do. These are the people we're going to serve. And then you apply while their grant window is open and you get it or you don't. And then you have to really be, you have to use the money for exactly what they gave it to you for. So if things tend to go a little maybe not as planned, you've got to communicate back to them to say, okay, maybe we need to change venue or something else needs to shift. So there's that kind of grant. And how long does that take? Like if someone found the open window and like, does it take three weeks of writing it up? And does the nonprofit do that? And you kind of check it over? Like what, um, what timeline I've here? How many people want to do this? Yeah, I've had both situations. I've written it before. And then sometimes, usually I'll write it because I'm the one that's creating the protocols and actually going to be teaching. So I know the most about what's going to happen. And then the nonprofit that's sort of supporting me in the work will make sure it's correct in terms of like the language, the nonprofit language, and then they will submit it on my behalf to the people that are actually the funder, the people that will give the money. And then can you use that very similar template year after yeah. year? Uh-huh. Yeah. And you know, it's not that daunting. Like if you've, it's really just, they're not asking for like such detail that they need to know everything you're going to teach for the time you're teaching. It's just the basic information about who you're serving. And you know, why, why should they spend money on your program? Because right. you are competing with other programming. So got to find the grantors that are serving the community that you want to serve. That's like the biggest tip, I guess I could say, is find a grantor that, you know, I would look for people that are giving funding for cancer programming. And with cancer, it's tricky because it's not medical. It's not like pharmaceutical, but it's wellness, lifestyle, mm -hmm. that side of things. Which is, I think, where we belong anyway, but that's a whole It is. Other. I know. Yeah, it is. But it's, there's so much more money that's in the other bucket <laughs> than for what we're doing. But it's, it is out there. And did the nonprofit tell you, like, hey, go to the Robert Woods Johnson or the cancer support community? How did you find the organization that is offering that grant? I was fortunate enough that they already had relationships with those organizations. Mm, great. Great. In all of the nonprofits that I've ever been, I've never served on a board or anything like that, but I've been like the spokesperson for the program before. Usually people that are on the board have some sort of connection to grantors or other business organizations. So within the people that are on the board, there's usually their, their larger networks, there's information that you can find. They'll point you in the direction. So I've never had to like go search for something brand new, no idea before. But that's just so good to save people time and energy mm -hmm. to say, look, yeah. hook up with a nonprofit. They have existing relationships. It's not that daunting, even though you have to fill out some paperwork and then you yeah. can use that template over and over. I think that's a, in a nutshell, like the best plan forward if you want to try to get a grant. It's especially great for not open-ended classes. Like they tend to like things that are structured time-wise. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can get stuff for open-ended classes, but if you have like, I want to offer like a 10-week series on this topic and I have a population, I'm, I'm not worried about like it's a public class where I'm going to have to worry about getting people to come. Like we have a population that we're serving, they've expressed interest and this is, we have a place, we have a teacher, we have the technology, we're going to go ahead and do that. That's, they want to see that you know what you're doing and that you have the framework in place so that, that it will be easy. Such valuable information. And we haven't had anyone on the podcast address that topic. And I get that question all the time from my students. So I'm really grateful that we took a little detour there. Yeah. What One last detour. And then I want to get to the subtle tools of yoga for cancer. Do you just call hospitals up and say, hey, I live here. This is what I do. Like, how did you approach the hospital? Kind of, <laughs> kind of. So you have to figure out who to talk to. And in the hospital here, so before the pandemic happened through the You Call This Yoga organization, which is also a nonprofit, well, I would go, they had a resource fair every week for cancer patients. So they have a little library and everybody, and it was everybody from Duke and then there were two outside organizations, myself included, sit around this library for a couple of hours once a month and hand out information. And basically the newly diagnosed patients would be told, go to the resource fair, 
you'll find out about everything. You'll find out they have wigs, they have lymphatic massage therapists, they've got all of the different social work, all the different support groups. So that, again, I'm there where I'm going to get access to the patients when they really need that information. That's amazing. Duke doesn't have a facility. We call it Big Duke. Big Duke is like the not not the the integrative side. They don't have room in the hospital for classes for patients. However, Duke Integrative does, and Duke Integrative has a fitness center also. So Mm -hmm. we're kind of trying to go in through the fitness center side. So that's on deck when they start adding programming from the pandemic. It's just been really slow to start back up again. There was also an organization, and gosh, I don't remember the name. It's been a really long time ago where I did Reiki in the hospital and someone uh, led me through the Chapel Hill Hospital to do Reiki on patients in hospital mm-hmm. rooms. And that was very special. And that, that, that does not happen that often. Yeah. Because I'm also a Reiki master. It's like a totally different topic, but still it's getting access. You have to figure out a way to get access because they're not going to just let any yoga teacher off the street come into a hospital That's and they right. have access to the patients. So. Yeah. You know, even with all of the letters after our names and the trainings that we've had, mm-hmm. I'm not a physician. You know, I don't have that kind of insurance. I don't have like malpractice insurance or anything like that. So we are limited in some ways because of that. And I, I mean, I know a lot of the people on your podcast, we talk about that a lot, but there are ways to get around that in a way that feels authentic and in a way that feels mm-hmm. safe for everybody. Yeah. And you usually have to have like an escort <laughs> most of the time. Mm. You know, I think this, what you just said is also such a valuable little tip that you kind of got in the door through maybe Reiki. And I have another friend in New York that went through a, a year long hospital chaplain course, mm-hmm. right? So she's getting in as a chaplain but she does yoga therapy with everybody, mm-hmm. right? So I think, you know, finding those extraneous little windows, maybe a therapeutic massage. If you're a massage therapist, there's, there's ways to get in and get to know people, get your work known, and then parlay that if you have some extra skills like you do yeah. as a Reiki master. Yeah. So let's talk about, I mean, the, the real reason I'm super interested in your work is there's a lot of classes out there with asana for cancer. And I honor those. And I believe we have to keep our bodies very healthy during these difficult times having cancer. But you told me that you focus on more subtle tools of yoga for cancer. So let's, let's dig into that a little bit. What does that even mean to you? Yeah. Um, <laughs> they mean so, different things to different people, right? Yeah. I can just give you a little bit of my, of a personal story that I always like to share about this because it's where my, my head went, oh my gosh, there's something else besides asana. So when I finished my original YTT, and again, it was a very long YTT, I wanted to know why. I wanted to know why asana made us feel the way it felt. So, you know, you can feel really uh, like joyful and almost there's like a little buzzing sensation when you do a a back bend. And forward bends make you feel very calm if they're done without pushing yourself, of course. And I was just really fascinated and I wanted to know like the science and the, the physiology of why, what's happening there. And of course the link is prana, breath, the koshas, all of that. So when I, that's why I chose the IYT program, the integrative yoga therapy program. The first week that I did with them, it's week residential modules and it's two, two weeks and one single week. And the one single week is an elective. I did that first just based on timing. And it was the subtle practices of yoga or the, it was, it was mudra, pranayama mudra and sound or something like that. So we went to, they actually used to come to California. So we went to a place called Mount Madonna, which is a beautiful retreat center. I mean, it was like the top of my head just like came off and all this information was downloaded because we did mudras, which are the hand gestures. You know, we did yoga nidra and which is guided relaxation and a lot more about how vibration of sound changes how you feel. And it really is, you know, asana focuses on anamaya kosha. Pranamaya kosha to some degree, but it's really in that physical body the shapes and forms of the physical body. But when we start to move into even just pranayama, it's more about obviously the prana and also manamaya kosha. We're getting into how does the prana shift the mind and the emotions, and then how can you use these tools, whatever they are, to access the witness. And it's all about accessing that witness. 
So when you say the witness, let's just be clear for our listeners that this is the Atman or the Purusha or that place inside of yourself that is all-knowing, eternal, free of fear. And free of judgment. Mm, talk about observing. that. Vijnana Mayakosha is that place where, and it's not a state that you stay in. It's you access it. But the strange thing about it is once you access it and you say, oh, I'm there, it goes away because you've just analyzed it. So it's momentary little nuggets that you get. And I can access it most easily in Yoga Nidra. What does it feel like to you when you access it? I, like, I really like to drill down and yeah. hear about experience. It's hard to put into words, but it's almost like, so if my waking, reacting, thinking, judging, sometimes negative self-talk, part of my mind, is in the front seat of the car driving. Mm. The witness is in the back seat watching. It's not giving advice. It's not telling you, oh, you're not doing it right. It's the one that's just calmly sitting in the back seat, observing what I'm doing, observing what everything, all the things I'm passing in my life, my interactions, my things that I'm taking in media, this and that. And it's just there. And it's always there. You know, we talk about the bliss, the Anandamaya Kosha in yoga, and it's that bliss. And it's like, I feel like you kind of have to go through the witness to get to the bliss. It's almost mm -hmm. like, I don't want to say gatekeeper because that's not really what I mean, but it's like to get to the bliss, you have to be able to, even for a moment, quiet down all of the swirling, mm -hmm. all of the everyday thinking that happens. And it just feels like, it just feels like peace. Yeah. Yeah. All of the shooting goes away and I can just be, you know, I, I realize that I can just be, that I am enough, that things are okay. You know, no matter what, in the analogy, no, no matter what road I'm driving, driving down, it's going to be okay. And that's, that's an invaluable experience that yeah. you can't get that from anything. There's no drug. There's no experience in any other realm of life that you can get there except for through these practices. And I mean, other practices too, not just yoga, but mindfulness practices. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to tell a very brief story that when I was going in for my cancer surgery last May, a friend had given me a 20 minute meditation that was basically just chanting om and putting om in different places in your body and letting the vibration resonate in different places in the body. But my surgery was four hours late. Like they got me prepped and then I had to sit there for hours and hours because the surgeon was late. So I put that on a loop, that 20 minute meditation. And for four hours, I just listened to Om, and I was so much the observer of this wow. surgery. It was, it was remarkable. I, I consider it one of the most beautiful blessings of my life to have gone so deeply and just observed like, oh, now the, now the body's going into, into surgery. Wow. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. And that's exactly it. It's the, that's interesting. It's not, oh my gosh, what's going to happen. It's just, this is happening. And that's, that's there. Yeah. And it's beautiful that we can access that in a yoga class. We don't have to be in a traumatic situation yes. like what's right that we could do it twice a week or yeah. every day. And, and I think, you know, we don't have to be a 30 year Vipassana meditator mm. to get there. Right. I mean, there's nothing, I mean, that's a wonderful practice, but not everyone can sit to meditate, right? That's not comfortable for everybody. So the, one of the reasons that I love those meditations, especially things like yoga nidra, where you can lay down, it, you don't have to be in a specific mood for it to work. You don't have to have, there are no requirements really to do it, except for you just in a hospital it. bed. Yeah. Yeah. Just or, have to pay or on a, a gurney going into surgery. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's really remarkable. So I want to go back to this idea of pranamaya kosha, the manomaya kosha, and the idea of prana and breath as a way to connect to this very deep part of ourselves. But do you have any idea about why is it that the hand gestures or visualization of certain parts of your body, do you have any thoughts about how that brings prana in or 
yeah. how it moves through us. So prana follows attention. Mm. And if it's asana, you're paying attention to what you're doing with your physical body, and that's going to bring prana into those places where you're either like feeling a stretch or you're trying to strengthen or balance. With pranayama, you know, it brings, obviously you're going to have the prana being directed into the lungs, but you also have the ability to put prana pretty much anywhere else in your body through that practice of pranavidya or the knowledge of the breath of like trying to focus on a certain place. And then through mudras, mudras act kind of like an antenna or a radio dial. So you, we have all of our nadis and on the, in the, the hands, there's a lot of different mini chakra points. And when you bring them together, it's like you're creating a closed circuit. So if you're not doing anything with your hand, you can think of, you know, the prana is just kind of like being off gassed a little bit out through those ending of the nerves, right? So you create all these different shapes and you redirect the prana back inside in a specific way that elicits some kind of a physical, mental, or an emotional response. And similar to how you would, like, if you want to listen to a certain kind of music, you turn the radio to a certain dial to get that out. It's like you're tuning your own energetics to shift something. And it, it can happen extremely quickly. There's certain mudras that, I won't say universally, but in most cases you feel it almost immediately. And some mudras you'll feel like you wow, that feels great. There's also mudras that you'll do and it's like, that does not feel good to me at all. It creates like a, a, an uncomfortable state inside. So you know that you don't do those mudras that you don't resonate with, but you try to focus on the ones that you do. And there's, there are mudras for almost any kind of ailment. Like it's pretty remarkable. They work off of the principle of the five elements, the Mahabhuta model. And each finger represents an element. The thumb represents fire. So fire is the transformative element. It acts on the other four elements. And even just things as simple as like touching paired fingers together or touching thumbs to each finger can be the most simple way to do mudras. So if you think about your hand, if you, we have five chakras that are in our body and two in the head. And the five in the body, if you hold your hand this way, relate to the five fingers. So earth at Muladhara, water at Svatistana, lower belly, Manipura, fire at the solar plexus, Anahata or air at the heart, and then Vishuddha or ether at the throat. And if you just touch the paired fingers together, and it doesn't matter how you hold your hand as long as you're not touching any other part of the hand to any other part, it's just that one contact point. So you can do each one, and I'm holding it way up here, but if I was really doing it, it would be down by my belly. You can sort of tap into or activate that element. And some of the mudras have a much more physical reaction, and some of them are a little bit more emotional or mental. But you could just do that very simply, you know, do that for 30, to 30 seconds to two minutes is usually a good place to start when you're doing a, a brand new mudra, and then release it and then do the next one. And you'll feel attention. You'll feel your attention and your breath go into those areas. And where the attention goes, the prana follows. And that's what creates the shift. I mean, it seems kind of like magic. It's <laughs> when, when I really sit down to think about it, or I'm explaining it to a brand new student, I'm thinking, are they going to believe me? They have to feel it. They have to feel it in themselves before they believe that I'm, what I'm talking about is actually real. <laughs> you know, I was talking to one of my teachers from India yesterday. I was having a lesson and I said, you know, when I do a mudra or a pranayama, I immediately feel the shift. I said, but a lot of my students, they they just say, I don't feel it. I don't. And so I, I want to be clear. And this is what he told me. And I think I agree with this, that as we become more refined and more subtle within ourselves, we feel those shifts of, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, this, this is making me buzz. But a lot of our students may not be that refined yet. Doesn't mean it's not working on them, That's but right. they don't feel it, right? That's so right. he was basically just saying, ask them to do it and they will eventually start to get more refined as their prana smooths out, as their breath starts to refine, the mudras will also be felt as well as other things. And it's, you know, it's a journey. It's a journey to, yoga is a journey inward. And we're all on different steps of that journey. 
So I respond differently now to my practices than I did when I first started. Like when I first started, I was a workout junkie. I was pushing myself. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a lot of guidance on not doing that, you know, when I started just practicing in public classes. And then it became learning, unlearning. It's really more about unlearning than learning, not to force, not to go too far, not to do too much, just to allow it to be there, especially in the asana practices. And then, you know, it's kind of like how Patanjali talks about the different limbs prepare you for the next one. So asana prepares you for pranayama because you refine the body. And one of my favorite examples that my teacher Richard Rosen would talk about is that like the torso is like a, an unbaked clay pot and doing the practices bakes the pot. It refines mm -hmm. the tissue, it refines the prana and it makes you more aware of those shifts. So like you said, it's, it's working even if someone may not notice it. And I think it's hard for students that aren't noticing it to get out of their head. I don't feel it. What is she talking about? You know, all of that front seat driver starts to go crazy. And then that will block them from actually feeling anything because then they're in their analysis and not able to just like, okay, just trust something's happening. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what this is reminding me also of is we have these theoretical ideas about what a forward bend will do, what a backward bend will do, which is mm -hmm. what you discussed. But then the real experience of the person could be very different. You put them in a forward bend and their hamstrings are screaming and they're not relaxed, right? Yeah. yeah. I think, and I'd love your opinion on this. I think the mudras are the same. Like there's a theoretical way that they are said to impact us based on those five elements that you talked about. Mm -hmm. But the reality of you will work out junkie at one point in your life doing them. And now a more refined mind, refined breath, refined tissues, it could have a pretty different effect depending on where that person is. So how do you work with that? Because they're so subtle and so powerful. I would think the consequences of having someone do such subtle, powerful work it's important to make sure it doesn't have a negative effect too, right? Mm -hmm. I'm always asking my students to notice what it feels like. Like they, I, they must be sick of me saying that because I probably say it 15, 20 times a class and I'm not exaggerating <laughs> because, you know, in each, how are we going to know if we went too far unless we're noticing what it feels like? And my goal is that the more often I can entrain their minds to keep doing the interoception, 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 like what, okay, what does it feel like, you know, do, or where do you feel it? If you're in like a simple hamstring stretch, where do you feel that? You know, do you feel it in your hamstring? Do you feel it in your calf or your foot? The more they get used to doing that when they're with me on the mat, hopefully the better they are at doing it when they're not with me and they're not on their mat. So when they're just going throughout their day, they can start to check in with themselves more. And, you know, we, I always start with very simple mudras and simple pranayama practices, usually very longana. Longana is cooling, calming, lengthening, so that those are less likely to have adverse effects than something that's brahmana. I love that. You know, we, we say in our tradition, which I think we must have a lot of overlap because everything you say is resonating with me. You know, shamanam and shodhanam, you pacify first before you go after the root cause. And... Yeah it's so important not to just jump into all these Brahmana practices yeah. that could have adverse effects. Even though I do believe those Brahmana practices are what really helps us to bring more prana in. If the container can't hold the prana, mm -hmm. what's the point? Yeah. yeah. And that is the basis of my cancer training actually, is that the way that I was taught by Joseph and Lillian for six months after treatment, and when I say treatment, I mean like chemo, radiation, surgery, some of the more like maintenance drugs that people are on for years, like aromatase inhibitors, that is not necessarily what I'm talking about with treatment. But during treatment and for six months after, everything should be long enough. Even if the person was like a Bikram yogini coming into surgery, because what's happening during treatment is surgery causes inflammation, which is heat. Radiation is actual heat. <laughs> Chemotherapy is chemical heat, and if you add heating practices on top of that, it's going to make the heat-exacerbated symptoms worse. So a lot of the symptoms that people experience is trying, their body is trying to process the heat out of the system. 
And then I almost always get asked, it's like, well, you know, what if I want to do, I mean, if they feel well enough to do like, I'm a runner and I want to have a run. It's like, well, if that's your thing, if that's what you're doing for your mind, body, health and wellness, and it's going to make you feel better, do that. But just maybe be willing to do it a little bit shorter, a little slower and monitor the effects. Notice how you're feeling in the moment. Notice how you're feeling in the 24 hours after you've done something like that. You know, if you if you do your run and you come home and you feel really sick to your stomach, then maybe that wasn't the thing to do and you don't do that again until you're feeling better, you know. But you can start to build in the more Brahmana practices after that point. And sometimes people never do. You know, sometimes they decide that's not for me anymore. I just really prefer to do the long gonna work. Yeah. Yeah. Love, love, love all that you're saying. So this ties in something else that you have recently brought fourth, which is mm-hmm. app. And I believe on your app, you have, it's called, um, let's see, what is it called? Mm-hmm. The Yoga Encyclopedia, and it's mm-hmm. both for Android and iPhone. Tell us about the app and specifically, are there subtle practices on the app? Yeah, there are. So when I can give you the story of how it came into being. So sure. the content on the app has been on my website since 2005, since the inception of my website. I started developing a website and I'm a, a web designer. I was a web designer after college and I had a little bit of that skill set. When I first started teaching, I was teaching for Kaiser Permanente's, which is a hospital in Oakland there employees and it was huge classes and I would have this little grid of stick figures. This is not a stick figure, but a little grid of stick figures that I would make for each sequence. This is when I used to plan out everything I did in classes. I don't do that anymore. And I would lay it on my mat because I had to walk around and I could just like look at it and go, that's what's next, right? So I started posting them on a blog and they're still all out there actually from back then. The students then wanted more, they wanted to to get them. So I would I sold books of those every quarter. And then I started to think, you know, that doesn't really give them any information though. It's just a name and a little stick guy. So I started taking photographs of myself in the poses and then writing out how you did it and why you would want to do it. And then that turned into a blog with all of that information for each sequence. And then that started to turn into adaptations for the asanas. And then when I started to incorporate more mudras into everything and pranayama and all of that, I would create the same thing for the mudras. And there's about 220 mudras, about 250 asanas. There's information on the chakras, sound practices, chanting, philosophy. I'm missing something. I said pranayama. Um, It's basically all the stuff that I teach that was being created in this yoga encyclopedia that was on the website. And I went back and forth between having it free, having a membership, and it's been mostly free forever. But then I decided that, you know, people were only finding it through Google searches. And even though it was getting a lot of hits every month, I mean, sadly, not to be materialistic about it, but I might get 20, I mean, it was getting like 1500 hits a month. Mm. And I might get, and there's donation buttons everywhere. I would get maybe $20 a month. And I'm like, this, there's something missing right there. So I bit the bullet last November and decided to go ahead and develop it into an app. And rather than paying someone to put all of that content, which would have probably cost me 10 or $15,000, I decided to do it myself. It took me nine months, many tears, many, <laughs> many moments of, am I creating something that no one wants to look at? Like, am I spending all of this time and all of this money and all of this like heart energy (laughs) to create this thing? So I launched it about a month and a half ago, a month ago, and I hate to say it, but almost nothing happened. So I'm, Mm -hmm. I, I, I had a small meltdown as, as one does. And I kind of decided, you know what? It's done. I'm adding to it. I've actually got classes the whole pandemic. I, taped myself when I taught. So I have all these classes and there's a class library now. It's got about 50 classes in it. Since I don't teach public classes anymore, every time someone asks, oh, can I take your classes? I'm like, well, there's an app. You can take them in the app if you're willing to do it on Zoom or do it on video, but it's getting there. It's getting there. It, it is probably going to be reviewed. Hopefully someone writes about it in one of our publications. I have other people that have asked me about it. So I'm just trying ways. It's kind of like with the cancer work, how can I get it in front of the people who need to see it? Right. And it is for both teachers and for practitioners. So mm-hmm. the depth of information is good for teachers. 
And I think the breadth of the information is what's really good for practitioners. So they can either just watch the classes, or if they want to learn a little bit more about a certain pose, they can go look and see, you know, how do I do triangle from a chair or, you know, whatever like that. So it's my baby. It did take nine months, so it did feel like I was having a baby. You know, I don't know if you know this, but we have a very similar experience that oh, really? all of my work of the last 20 years was released in an app last May. Oh my gosh. The same month I got cancer. Oh my gosh. And, you know, I think so far we have about 300 people, which is fantastic. We're yeah. considering I took several months off, but it really is just kind of an act of faith to take your baby that you have developed over 20 years and hope that someone is going to use it and enjoy it and believe in it. And I don't know how you're viewing this, but I just feel like I'll be adding content to ours, which is mostly yeah. a mental health tracking app for 20 years. Yeah. And over time it will build. I don't need a huge, big audience right away, but over time, the right people will see it. Maybe I'll enjoy it. Maybe organizations will be interested in it. I, I got an email yesterday saying, hey, your your app is a tracking app for yoga and Ayurveda based on the five elements. Our mm. university is very interested in that. I was like, okay. So I don't know how Wonderful. you're feeling, but do you feel okay with it kind of unfolding over the next 20 years? Now I do. <laughs> Okay. I do. I wanted instant gratification because, you know, I polled the people because it used to be just under a password protected. So I knew who was accessing it. And I polled them. What do you want? You know, what can I add? What are you willing to pay? And did that basically. And it was it was sort of a, a wah, wah, wah moment when it released because nothing really happened. I mean, I think I have I have four people that signed up and are paying me monthly, which, you know what, that's better than zero people. And they're really liking it, so that's good. But my real mindset was, okay, if it's out there on the app stores and people are looking for yoga, there are some yoga apps like practice yoga apps, but they are, they're all almost all vinyasa. They're not adaptive yoga. They're certainly not yoga therapy. And a lot of the mudra apps that are in existence now all are coming from one source. So what I have done is looked at pretty much every source I can get my hands on because a lot of the mudras taught in different traditions have different names. So I've sort of cross-referenced everything and some of the mudras that are the same mudra, some traditions say it does this and some traditions say it does that. But I sort of whittled it down based on what I know and my theory with the five elements to say, okay, this is, if I'm going to all go by this one theory, this is what I'm going to say it does. But really, you have to practice it yourself to see how it feels, you know. And there's a, one of the things that I think I'm most proud of for the mudra piece is there's a therapeutic mudra index that lists by kosha ailments, so body ailments, energy ailments, mental, emotional ailments. And then you can go in and search and it has all the mudras that are for that specific condition that you can go then click a link and go right to it. So that, mm -hmm. that took, that took the longest, like that was years and years and years of drawing those connections and making those links. But I think that's going to be really, really helpful, especially for practitioners. So many times when people see an offering, they don't realize the decades of study and work and blood and sweat and tears that go into it. You know, with, with our work, people say, Oh, it's so simple. It's so elegant. It, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And I'm like, yeah. And it took me 20 years to figure out how to present yeah. it that way. And yeah, I'm sure exactly. you feel the same. Like, it's not just you throwing out mudras like pieces of candy. Mm -hmm. Really researched it, experienced I it. it. <laughs> Photographed, like all the photo <laughs> photography I've done myself and it's of myself. So I even had that moment of like, do I really want to put all those pictures of myself out there on that app? And I'm like, I had like a little moment of self-consciousness. I'm like, you know what? It doesn't matter. And I had the, my very first reviewer said, I love that they're pictures of you mm, because nice. I'm the only one that can show the adaptation of the asana that I want to show with the props, the way I want to show it. Like yeah. if I had models, think about how much time that would take, how mm. expensive that would be. I mean, it would just be untenable to do it like that. So I'm like, you know what? Yeah, it's okay. It's okay that it's me. Sometimes like I'm, in, I'm on a hardwood floor with no props. 
15 years ago, and then some are beautifully, you know, with this white, that's what that thing is back there is it's a giant piece of fabric that's for photography. Mm. And some of them are very nice and like very professional looking and some of them aren't. I'm like, it's okay. You know, yeah. this is my, this is my, it's really my, my whole heart and what I love about yoga just offered. It's like, this is the information. And it's basically any training that I've done. I've, when I got really granular into the practices for trainings, I would then put that in the app. So like anything mm -hmm. new I create, like you're saying, I just put it in there. I'm like, okay, it's like a warehouse or a storehouse of all of the information that I know about yoga. And it's, you know, like you said, it's almost 20 years worth. Yes. And really committing to it before the baby is born, right? Like it, it almost reminds me of people going through infertility treatments. They're they're committing to it. They're putting their time and energy and resources, not knowing if a baby is going to actually happen. And I think that's what faith is. That's what Shraddha is. And to me, that's the key to life that you believe in something before it is manifest in a tangible gross way that everybody can see you believed in it long before when it was a little seed underneath the ground, <laughs> yeah. nobody knew about it yet. And very few people are able and willing to do that, Cheryl. I'm, I'm, I'm touched that you're doing it. And I know that it will manifest because everything goes from subtle to gross, as we know. Yeah, yeah. The faith that it takes to actually do it is very rare. Very rare. I'm a very driven person. <laughs> and I don't take no for an answer much. I mean, I do. But, you know, if, if someone, if, if I have a vision of something and there's a block I get blocked by it. I just go around it. Or, I mean, sometimes I decide it's not worth it and I don't do it. But most of the time, especially with work, I mean, I love teaching adults. I love teaching adults. And the cancer work had kind of came out of this specialization. But to me, that there's no greater joy than having someone come to your class that's in pain or, or suffering and showing them something that they can do to help themselves. Like that, there's no greater joy than that. Yeah, completely agree. Well, we're, our time is coming to an end. Is there anything we didn't touch on that you feel you wanted to share today? Yeah, I have a cancer teacher training that's in process right now. I work for two other studios, the Mindfulness Center, which is located in Bethesda, Maryland. Deborah Norris runs that, and I do yoga nidra classes on Thursdays. And I do the cancer class, the free cancer class is on Tuesdays and I'm EST. So Tuesdays at 12 EST for an hour and we rotate through different classes. So we do like chair yoga one week, restorative, mat, subtle and nidra. I've written about 40 yoga nidra meditations that are available mm. both as scripts and MP3s. And what else? The training is through eight limbs in Seattle. And it's a 50-hour training that we do a module on each of the practices. So there's a module on asana, one on sound and pranayama, one on mudras, one on yoga nidra, and then there's a practicum with actual patients. So this is the second year we've run that, and I'm applying for APD status, which I'm really excited about, to try to get some more CIAYTs so that they can get their continuing education credits. And then, yeah, I mean, I, I just I keep trying to get this work out there and get it known mm, yeah so i've been for those of you on youtube you can see this but i've been having cheryl's website up here on the page www.yogasheryl.com and everything that she's just talked about is right here classes and workshops trainings yoga encyclopedia app. You're, yeah. you're a busy, motivated woman. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing so many precious jewels with us today from your work on mudras and subtle work for cancer, as well as how you've teamed up with nonprofits and hospitals. It's just really inspiring. Thank you so much, Amy. I'm so glad we were able to do this. It's my pleasure to just share. And, you know, if, if, if some of my mistakes can help someone else not make those mistakes, I am more than willing to share that. It isn't easy to do what we do. It really isn't. It really does take a lot of dedication and it's a labor of love. And, you know, I'm always happy. I On that website, I have a, under the contact area, I have a chat with me link 
So pretty much anyone, especially teachers, if they want advice or if they want to chat with me, you can schedule like a 30-minute consultation, chit-chat with me just to figure out. Sometimes they want to talk about like what we talked about with the nonprofits or how to bring the work with cancer into their community. So I'm always willing to do a little off-the-cuff mentoring. I also do a, like actual mentoring if anyone's interested in that. So, and I, it's been a very generous of you, by well, the way. Well, it's been a really amazing way to build community. I have really built a community of, it has created a community of teachers that has been really wonderful because I learned so much from everybody else as well. Right. And, you know, during this time, we, I feel so separated from everybody, you know, even in the programs I'm running, it's like we see each other for a couple of hours a week and through a screen. So it's a nice way to just get to know each other and try to build those connections. They're so, so important. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you, Cheryl Fenner Brown. <laughs> well, that was a fantastic talk. I really enjoyed my time with Cheryl. I had never met her before. And we literally spent two minutes saying hello and then jumped right in. And I think this episode just flowed so smoothly. And I'm really happy with how it turned out. You know, what Cheryl was talking about at the end, I think so many of us can relate to that working in the field of yoga and yoga therapy is a labor of love. We do it because our hearts will not allow us to do anything else. It's not about the money. It's not about the fame or the prestige. It's about the thrill that we get from seeing someone's state shift in just an hour from being very stressed out and tight and worried to looking completely at peace with a smooth face and soft eyes and body that has learned to relax for a moment. That's why we do this work and the labor of love to bring it forth. It takes a lot of personal energy and focus and time and I see so many people in our optimal state business class that we run every year, starting in May, just really shocked at how much it takes to build a yoga business. I think many of us had this idea coming in like, oh, I'm going to take my training and I'm going to go out there and everyone's going to want to pay me well, and I'm going to make enough money and be sustainable. And people find out like, oh, you have to understand the business side of it too, how to get those grants, how to connect with the nonprofits, how to approach hospitals, how to find the right person at the hospital. That idea that maybe studio classes don't work as well for people with chronic illness because they have a hard time getting there. So how are we going to find the people where they are and go join them where they already are? Those are all parts of building our yoga business. And then, you know, going into the app, both Cheryl and Optimal State have built an app now. Ours is more about tracking your mental health state according to the gunas of yoga and Ayurveda, and then allowing the different times of the day to be seen. Why am I always in Vata in the 6 to 10 a.m. time? Why am I so hungry over the, the lunch hour? And oh, that's the pitta time of day. You know, there's so many things that we can bring forward to the normal common everyday person to help them feel better. But again, it's a labor of love. We took almost five years to build our app with developers. Cheryl is a techie. She was able to do it in nine months with lots of tears. I congratulate her for that, but we just didn't have that kind of tech expertise. So, you know, all I'm trying to say is this yoga path is not easy. Even people like Krishnamacharya sometimes had to get side jobs picking coffee to feed their families, even with his level of expertise back in the day. And we might have to do that too. We might have to find ways to support ourselves until we can become sustainable. And I think that's a message we need to share early on in the training to let people know that they're going to have to be a business person as well as a yogi probably because it is a very entrepreneurial type thing that we're doing. So with that, I wish you well and happy fall. And I hope to see you next week. Thank you. Please don't forget to sign up for our newsletter mailing list, where we give you a free gift every single week. It's usually something that the guest has been talking about, like a book chapter or an article 
or an infographic. Check out the show notes for that. Thank you for listening today. Don't forget, we have a new YouTube channel called Optimal State with Amy Wheeler. We also have a new Patreon page where you can support us to bring you the most excellent content. And that is Optimal State and the Yoga Therapy Hour Patreon page. Also, you could write us a review on most major platforms that host podcasts. Give us five stars if you appreciate the show and tell us what you love so that we can do more of that. Finally, we support several nonprofit organizations through this podcast. See the show notes to understand how you can help. If you'd like to be a guest or a sponsor for this program, contact us at the email welcome at theoptimalstate.com. Welcome at theoptimalstate.com. And finally, a special thank you to our team here at Optimal State. We are truly a global family. George Mantuan, one of our executive producers. Adam Satchel, senior media producer and sound engineer from the Philippines. Krishna Panchal, a producer from Canada. Modupe Abdullahi, who does the show notes and is an editor for us from Nigeria and Peter Morley, who wrote and produced the music for this show, who lives in Australia. Find more about Peter's work at www.zenmusic.biz. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.